Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the service and the volunteers and the effort of so many to bring this service about each week. It's a gift to you, Father. It's their spiritual service of worship, Father, but it's also a gift to the body. Thank you, Father, for that. Because we know you are the the one who, through the Spirit, is calling men to yourself and gifting them and giving them the, the desire to serve you in love. Thank you, Father, for your word, the light unto our feet, the truth, and the life. And Father, we live on it, not on bread alone, and we are thankful that we may sit today at your feet and receive what you have for us. I pray that you would teach, Father, and that men would hear from you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As someone so rudely acknowledged earlier in the service, last week I devoted the entire teaching to only two verses. That is a new low for me in terms of pace, but I do not intend to repeat that this week. We will finish the chapter this week. I thought the two verses we covered last week 16 and 17 were important enough to to warrant the extra attention. I hope you would agree. Together they explain God's purpose for the creation, in a sense, and the reason why faith in God's Word is now the means to salvation, rather than through some other means that God may have provided. And so I do hope you would agree it was worth a week to examine that in detail. But today we're going to move forward, as I said, and finish the chapter. Notice as we go back into the text today, beginning in verse 18, that we are still learning about the details of day six of the creation. From chapter one, day six was the creation of animals, man and woman. And in this day, we see in detail how that is being done. And over the past two lessons in the chapter we've been in, chapter two, we've watched so far God create Adam from the ground, breathe life into him, prepare a unique home for him, the garden, place him in the garden, and then command him to serve God by keeping the garden. And as you remember, we said he didn't need a gardener, but rather he desired a obedient servant. And then last week we looked at the covenant that is extended from God to Adam that includes promises and a commandment. And the commandment was not to eat of the fruit of a certain tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. With that commandment came a promise. And the promise was that should Adam decide to eat, disobeying God, he would experience spiritual death. So that's where we left off last week. And 16 and 17 were really the culmination of several things as we looked through the first half of the chapter. Now in this week, we move forward further into the events of that same day. So we are still in day six. So beginning in verse 18, let's read the next few verses and move on. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. We'll pause there. Plenty to look at in just those three verses. God says, Man should not be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. Noticing back in Genesis chapter 1, when God concluded day 6, that was the occasion upon which God declared that His work on that day, and by extension, His work from the whole week, was very good. Hebrew double emphasis on good. But now, looking at the details of day six, we learn there was a point midway through that day when God decided that his creation on that day was actually not good. Or maybe another way to say it is not good enough. 
God decides at this midpoint that it's not good for Adam to be alone. Now, that's a strange statement since literally Adam is not alone. He walks with God in the garden, does he not? God himself is the perfect companion. It would suggest that God is thinking here into a future moment, into a future need, a time in which Adam will need a helper other than God by his side. It's not merely God saying men, in the context of how we live today, men need wives. That, that's implicit, but it's not the main point. The main point is God, if he's not with Adam, has already intended that Adam have something in God's absence. We'll look more at that in a minute. Let's look at the words for a second. The words suitable helper. It's a unique Hebrew phrase. In fact, it only occurs here in all of the Old Testament. It's never repeated anywhere else. It would literally mean, if you were to transliterate into English, it would literally mean a servant in front. A servant in front. The complete sense of that phrase is not immediately apparent in English. It is a colloquialism within Hebrew. The sense of it is a perfect complement. The mirror image or a perfect complement. I want you to think of like a, an orange. And you take an orange into the kitchen and you take a sharp knife and you decide to cut the orange in half. But the way you choose to do it is not the traditional way of slicing it perfectly in half. You go jagged down the middle of the pumpkin, creating a jagged-faced cut. And then the two halves separate. Now, each half of that sphere, of that orange, is perfectly matched to its missing half. The two pieces can only fit each other, and they wouldn't fit any other half that was cut in place of those two. And only after they're reunited do you get the whole back again. That's the Hebrewism. That's the sense of what Hebrew means when it says perfectly suited, a helper that's perfectly suited. Another way to say it is God's looking for Adam's other half. And when they're together, they form a perfect union, something perfectly matched, a helper who makes Adam complete. The match is perfect in three ways. It's perfect physically. The man-woman uniting is clear enough. Spiritually and intellectually. Something that Adam finds a match for himself. Now, God begins the search according to Genesis chapter 2. He begins the search for this suitable helper by looking at the animal kingdom. But we ultimately know, even before we move forward, that he will not find what he's looking for among the animals. Ultimately, God arrives at woman. And I'm not getting ahead of the text here so much as just trying to give the full picture of what he's looking for as he goes through this process. We have to understand then the phrase suitable helper in the context of a wife. We have to understand that what God is looking for in that phrase is something in the context of a wife. We're not talking here about a girlfriend. We're not talking about a domestic partner. We're not talking about a live-in lover. Nor, I should add, are we talking about a slave. Nor are we talking about a second-class member of a marriage. We're talking about partners, lifelong, committed, married partners who form a completed whole. What does the phrase suitable helper mean then? If it doesn't mean those things, what does it mean in the context of wife? First, it's not a demeaning phrase. In our culture, particularly in the libertarian Western cultures of today, any suggestion of servant or helper comes with a demeaning sense because our culture has attached that meaning. And the idea of freedom and personal liberty and it's all about me and, and looking out for number one and that cultural mentality has found its way into the way we think about helpers. And it's not a biblically representative view of a helper. God himself, at multiple points in Scripture, calls himself a servant using exactly the same Hebrew word as is used here to describe the word servant. 
If it is used to describe God, it cannot be used in a demeaning sense. It cannot be used in a sense of lessening the value. In fact, it's used to describe someone who is committed as a willing partner in an honorable and important life work. That's the full sense of the word. It means a servant who values the opportunity to serve. The word's important here because it implies several expectations. Just this description, suitable helper, implies several expectations for what God expects out of a marriage. First, God is implying that Adam's helper is to be engaged in the work of service to God that God gave to Adam. That's why she's called a helper. She's a committed helper with Adam in the work that God gave Adam. Adam received, if you remember, the command to serve God in the garden. He received that command before the woman was on the scene. So when God determined that Adam needed a helper to accomplish that work, he offered Adam a helper, a suitable helper. So the context in which woman helps husband is not in the trivial sense of doing the laundry and the dishes. That may be the way a woman may help in the home, but then again, a man may help in the home that way as well. That's not the sense of it. The sense of it is in a spiritual work of serving God. Man, in his appointed role to serve God, is better with a helper than without in serving God. Secondly, it implies that the ultimate purpose of marriage is to make Adam more effective in serving God. It is not an arrangement designed to enhance our social calendar or our financial standing. It is not an arrangement that is designed to make us um, uh, feel good about ourselves necessarily or feel accepted or needed. Honestly, folks, if you've been married more than a year, you know that if you're looking to your marriage partner to feel accepted and needed, you're probably going to be disappointed before it's all over. We look to God for those things. Christ. We hope our partner in marriage accomplishes that work as well, but it is not where we rest. It is an arrangement that should result in a life led more successfully in service to the Lord, both for Adam and for the woman. If a marriage isn't making both partners more effective in serving the Lord, then there's something in that marriage that needs to change because it's not living up to its ultimate purpose for God. And finally, the last thing this phrase implies about marriage It teaches that the work begins with the husband. The wife is the helper for a life of service that was first given to the man. And while the woman's work stands on its own and has equal value and importance to God, nevertheless, it cannot be a replacement for the spiritual service every man must pursue toward God. A wife is going to find it difficult to be a helper for a husband who isn't himself already engaged in the right spiritual work. So from that point of view, a husband that is not living up to his responsibilities is also dragging his wife down. You can sum up the relationship by a simple comparison. Woman helps Adam in the way the Holy Spirit is sent as the helper to every believer in Christ. Just like the Holy Spirit, a wife is a lifelong companion. Just like the Holy Spirit, the wife can be a counselor for the sake of righteousness. Just like the Holy Spirit... She can be a source of love and comfort and encouragement. But just like the Holy Spirit, she is also at times a source of conviction. These are all the ways in which a wife or the Holy Spirit to us is a helper in our spiritual service to God. Now, before we get to the moment when God actually creates this perfect helper, we've got to see how he begins. And he begins here by creating the animals for Adam. Now, it's interesting, if you notice in the text, 
What does he create the animals out of, according to Genesis 2? Out of the dirt of the ground, just as he created Adam. Here we learn that the animal kingdom comes from the same substance that God used when he created man. And that will become important when we look at chapter 3. Then we notice the next step, Adam's given the right to name the animals. Up to this point, God, as we've noticed already in Genesis 1, he named everything in his own creation, with the only exception being the sun and the moon, and we discussed why he didn't choose to name those. Here now, though, he grants Adam the right to name the animals. And in the fact that he does this, God is implicitly assigning Adam dominion over these creatures, over the animals of the kingdom, of the world. And I would argue that is, in fact, the true purpose of this exercise. God knows that the animals are not suitable companions. There's no discovery for God in this process. It's not as though God is waiting to find out, ooh, I wonder if he'll find something in the animal kingdom to keep him happy. There's no doubt in God's mind that this is an unfruitful exercise if its only purpose was to find a suitable helper. And because of that, we have to conclude he is using this as an opportunity to teach or to demonstrate something to Adam and then, of course, to us as well. God asks Adam to watch as he makes all the animals in creation and then parades them in front of Adam, asking Adam to name them, knowing he's not going to find a suitable helper. So he's demonstrating to Adam that you are in dominion over these animals. These animals are created for your benefit. Remember, he's looking for a helper. That implies these are for you, these are for you, and you have dominion over them when you name them. Secondly, I think, it was Adam's way to understand that the animal kingdom does serve his needs, but in an incomplete way. They're going to be useful. Animals are useful to us. They, they give us useful work. They're companions in many cases. They have those purposes, certainly. But they are not a substitute for the helper when we remember the purpose of that helper to Adam was to help serve God. They're not suitable to that purpose. And through this exercise of naming all of them, Adam is exposed firsthand to both those truths. I have dominion. I have control. These are mine. But on the other hand, they don't work for the ultimate purpose I'm looking for. Unfortunately, we're going to see when we get to chapter 3, Adam misses the significance of this lesson. He fails to appreciate his dominion over the animal kingdom. Now, looking at the naming process for a moment, Adam watches this parade of animals. He names one in turn. Now, that suggests something interesting. It suggests that Adam has a speaking language. He has the ability to convey language even from this initial point. That would make sense. Men have spoken from as far back as we know. So, it suggests very clearly Adam was created with language, the ability to speak from day one. On top of that, we can make an ed educated guess, a reasonable assumption, concerning what language he spoke. If you look at the biblical record, prior to the Tower of Babel, prior to the scrambling of languages, we know there was only one language prior to that moment. And when you look at the names that people are given prior to the Tower of Babel, names like Adam, Abel, Lamech, so on. They all have meaning. They all are words that actually mean something. Adam, for example, we already discovered, means earth, dirt. Abel means vanity, by the way. Lamech, we'll study later, means warrior. Methuselah means when he dies, it shall be sent. But these words only have meaning in one language. There's only one language in which those words mean something. The language Hebrew. Adam doesn't mean anything in English, but those words actually have meaning in Hebrew. And after you have the confusion of language at the Tower of Babel, the names in the Bible no longer have meaning in languages except Hebrew. Therefore, you can safely assume, and I believe, that the first language given to men was Hebrew, 
all men from Adam onward spoke Hebrew until the scattering of language at the tower. And now at this point you might be asking also another question. How is it possible for Adam to name the entire animal kingdom in a day? That usually gets people thinking. And the answer is twofold, actually. It's not as hard as it may sound. First, remember, Adam is naming kinds. Behrman. Behrman, remember from chapter 1? A kind, as God created the animal kingdom, is a class, a group of animal types that by their DNA were originally created as a single animal type that within its DNA had the capacity to diversify over time into subgroupings. We don't know what those kinds were, but we can see what's originated out of them. And even scientists today who don't believe in the Bible will acknowledge that the DNA structure of animals today shows evidence that they descended from some more common animal type. Of course, where they go wrong is in assuming that those types actually crossed boundaries and were all themselves part of some singular organism at an earlier point. That's not biblical and not even supported by the science. But simply looking at kinds, for example, like uh, canines, it's probable that God created a canine, some kind of singular dog or canine-like animal from which in the DNA, over time, it could diversify into the variety that we have today. And that doesn't do any violence to, to Scripture. It doesn't do any violence to the timelines of the Bible. It's a perfectly valid way in which God could have created. And if that's true, then God didn't have to parade in front of Adam coyotes and wolves and foxes and greyhounds and you know, poodles, thank God. What he did instead was... He just paraded in front of him a canine of some kind, and Adam names him dog, canine, whatever the Hebrew word is. Similar with birds. He doesn't have to parade in front of him nuthatches and sparrows and robins. He just has to parade a bird. That's consistent with what God says he did in chapter 1. That would bring the total number of animals you're trying to type or name way down from what we see today. Secondly, the second reason or the second way in which this would have happened is it's evident from the text itself, even with what we've just read, that Adam does not actually have to name everything. How do I know that? Well, for example, God never asks Adam to name fish. And yet fish have names and we have dominion over fish. So clearly he left out that whole group of animals just out of necessity. He couldn't swim them by Adam, I guess. If he's willing to leave out that group of animals, then it stands to reason that he is not singularly concerned with whether Adam gets a chance to see every single last creature. That's not the point of the exercise so much as it is to make a point to Adam about the lack of suitableness in these creatures for his sake and that he has dominion over the animal kingdom. He can make both those points adequately without the necessity that he parade every single last animal through. And by the testimony of Scripture, we know he didn't include all of them. He didn't include the fish at the very least. Those two facts alone bring you to a conclusion that he could easily have accomplished this task in one day. In fact, Dr. Henry Morris, as he looks at the text, he suggests that if you uh, gave Adam a, a certain reasonable amount of time per animal, he could easily name 3,000 kinds in five hours. 3,000 kinds in five hours would, would, would more than encompass the diversity of the animal kingdom today, minus the fish, assuming they were being brought in their original form as a kind, in the way they were originally created. So Adam is now evidently unpleased with what he has seen. And so God now sets about to make him a suitable helper. Now, what follows in the text from where we go next is a fascinating process that reflects God's ultimate purpose in this hunt. And before we read what God does in creating woman, I want you to look, go back with me just briefly and compare what happens on day six from chapter one. I want it fresh in your mind. So I'm just going to read that briefly. Genesis 1, 24 is day six. 
Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. There's that word barramin again. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, did you notice the order of events in chapter 1? And compare it to the order of events we're watching in chapter 2. In chapter 1, the day six events are God creates the animals, God creates man and woman, then he instructs man and woman to have dominion over the animal kingdom. Now, in Genesis 2, looking at day 6 again, the order is different. God creates man before animals, then creates the animals, then shows man he has dominion, then creates woman. Now, that would appear to be a different order, would it not? Which is another reason why some critics claim that chapters 1 and 2 represent two different creation accounts. This is another place they might point and say, see, they're different. They're not consistent. Now, to answer that critique, remember, chapter 2 was written to clarify and explain day 6 in detail. If God had believed that the explanation Moses offered in chapter 1 was sufficient, then he never would have given us chapter 2. That's self-evident. Chapter 1, we already said, is a summary. It's a summary of the day. Chapter 2, on the other hand, is a detailed, specific accounting of that day. Remember the zoom-in, zoom-out pattern we've talked about before? There's points in Genesis in which Moses is flying from high above, looking over the land, so to speak, and summarizing things from a broad point of view. And then he'll dive back down and really get into the details. And therefore, we have to view chapter 2 as the definitive timeline since it was written for that purpose, whereas chapter 1 was not written to be a definitive timeline. It was written to be a summary. Secondly, the purpose of chapter 1 was very different than chapter 2. What was the purpose of chapter 1? It was to highlight the importance of man in the overall plan of creation. Everything in that week leads up to man. Everything about it is driving our attention to why is this good? Why is this good? Why are you going with this, God? And at the very end we see, ah, for man and woman, very good. And the story ends. But in chapter 2, the purpose is very different. In the way Moses explains day six in chapter two, it's to show God's care and attention in the creation of man, but more particularly to why we have the existence of woman. Chapter two ultimately leads to why is there woman? The events of this story are important in understanding how we arrived at two people that are different and yet matched and paired so Moses sets up the events of chapter 1 not to emphasize the timeline, to scrutinize the details, to offer us a blow-by-blow -blow analysis, but rather just to show the, the point of the creation, to give an opportunity for man to have fellowship with God in a world created for his benefit. But now day 6 is being amplified so that we'd understand more specifically why he did what he did on that day, and now the events turn to the specific order and the occasion of why. So I would argue that chapter 2 is the order. Chapter 1 was not intended to be an order, it was intended to be a summary. Now, let's look at the creation of woman. Verse 21. 
So Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he has taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. I like to think that as Moses recounts that, he's actually leaving out a small piece because perhaps before man gave that eloquent soliloquy as he sees woman for the first time. Maybe he just said, wow. Maybe he just went, did you notice God's very last act of creation before he rested, before he sat down from the work of creation, as Hebrews puts it, was woman. The last thing God created was woman. And then he felt things were very good. So we notice that woman is created in a very unique way. Notice she is not made ex nihilo, out of nothing, nor is she made the way Adam was made, out of dirt. She is uniquely made. Nothing else in creation is made the way woman is made. She is made out of Adam. Now, ultimately, that means she comes from the same substance as Adam. Dirt, in other words. But there is tremendous significance in the fact that she is made from part of Adam and not from a return to the earth itself. Not to go back to square one like God did with Adam. The meaning of that significance is covered in chapter 3. So I put that off again. Now, looking at the method, God begins this surgery. He puts Adam into a deep sleep. This is the first surgery in Scripture. We logically would assume, as we look at this, that the sleep was necessary to protect Adam from the pain of the surgery, right? And a kind of godly anesthesia. Now, in a perfect world... It may not even have been true that Adam would have felt pain under these circumstances. We don't necessarily understand what was life like prior to the fall, prior to the curse. Was pain a part of life? And even if it were, let's just assume for the moment that he would have felt pain if someone's digging into his side. God could certainly have eliminated the pain without putting Adam to sleep. In other words, I think there's more going on here for the sake of the text that God put Adam to sleep. It's not merely anesthesia. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They're in the heat of a fire furnace. They don't feel pain, from what we can tell. They certainly don't burn up and die, but they didn't have to be put to sleep to avoid it either. So clearly, if God's only purpose was just to make it you know, less painful for Adam, the sleep part wasn't a necessity. In fact, you could argue that it would have been better to leave him awake because then he would have seen the whole thing happen and had a better appreciation of what God was willing to do to bring about this helper, right? So why is there deep sleep? The significance here, I think, is that deep sleep means something much more. It has a very important symbolic meaning. Do you remember the uh, earlier, actually, I guess, later in the text, if you remember Adam, I mean, uh, Abraham, as God enters into a covenant with Abraham in uh, Genesis 15, if you know that story, what transpires as God extends the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham? Do you remember he puts Abraham into a deep sleep The same words in the Hebrew are used there as are used here. And when we study that more in chapter 15, which will probably be a a generation from now, uh, we'll look at the full sense of why that's happening and what the meaning of it is. But I can give you a taste of it now so that we see how it fits in the conversation of Adam. Abraham's deep sleep pictures Abraham dead. You think about it, when someone's really deeply asleep, it's almost hard to tell if they're alive unless they're snoring. And that's the sense of it. In fact, the New Testament even uses sleep as a euphemism for death. 
When Abraham was dead, he was dead as in dead, or when he was asleep, he was as dead as if he were dead in his sin. Abraham, dead in his sin, was the picture of Abraham in that moment. And while he's dead in his sin, God is there doing a work, the work of establishing a covenant to save Abraham and his descendants. The picture being, God was the one doing the saving. Adam, Abraham participated not at all in it. He simply was dead and received it, much as we now understand how grace comes to the New Testament believer. While we are yet dead in our trespasses, an enemy of God, not seeking God, not even trying to be righteous, God comes along and brings us to new life in the Spirit. Now look back at Adam. Similarly, Adam is placed in a deep sleep, and I would argue for the very same meaning. God makes clear that he alone, God alone, is performing a work here to save Adam. What is the work in this case, though, since Adam is not yet in sin? Well, Consider that as Adam appears dead here, his body is apparently dead, appears to be dead in the way sleep looks dead. While he's in that state, part of his flesh is taken away. And that flesh is used to make a bride for Adam. Does that sound familiar? In the future, there will be a new Adam who will go to the grave, but only for a time. And later, this new Adam, who we call Christ, will resurrect back to life, as if coming back from sleep. And when he awakens after that death, the resurrection we call it, what will be waiting to greet him? Over time, the body of Christ becomes the bride of Christ. The body of the man whose death made possible a bride is pictured in Adam in a deep sleep, something like a death, giving part of his body to make possible a bride mated for him, matched for him. The bride, of course, being the church. So even from this early point in the Bible, we see the foreshadowing of God picturing how he will build a church, the bride for his son, out of the body of Christ. So how was woman actually made? The woman, the Bible says she came from the rib. That's the English version I have, the rib of Adam. That word, though, for rib, actually, in the Hebrew, tesla, It's used 53 times in the Old Testament. This is the only time it's translated rib. Every other instance of this word in the Old Testament, Hebrew uh, Old Testament, is translated simply side. Now, what the English translators did here is they assumed that because we're talking about a piece of bone, as bone is mentioned, that it must be the rib that's there at the side of the body. That's possible. I'm not saying that's not possible. But I am saying that's an assumption. All we know from the word is it came from Adam's side. I think that's the more significant word. I think the word is chosen for a purpose to illustrate that regardless of what material God took, that's not really even that important. It was part of his body. Whatever was taken, you notice God closed it over. He replaced it so that Adam's not maimed, looking like he's had a bite taken out of him for the rest of his life. God repaired that hole. But in the fact that it comes from the side, rather than, for example, the head, the neck, the feet. Think about the symbolism that would inevitably attach to this description if we went on forever saying women were taken out of men's feet. It suggests something, right or wrong. It starts to give us thoughts about how we perceive the relationship between man and wife. Or if it had been taken from man's head, a similar kind of of, uh, debate might ensue around what does it mean that she came from on top of man rather than on the bottom of man, right? Now, instead, God says, from the side. Well, there's no mistaking 
the meaning there, is it? Suitable helper, perfectly matched, companion for life, taken from the side. We even use a similar phrase in English, right? We're joined at the hip as a way of saying you and I are partners, equally partners. The suggestion is purposeful, I think, in the text. God chose that the woman would be at the side of man, taken from the side of man, so that we would never be tempted to conclude that the woman was in some way greater or less than men, but at the side equal. And that, my friends, is the lesson at this stage of Scripture, at this point, chapter 2. We're not past chapter 3 yet. We're not into what we find today. We're talking about a point in time. But at this point in time, God's original design for the marriage was that man and woman were completely equal. There is no headship. There is no suggestion at this point of one greater than the other. They are perfectly matched in equality. However, why did he choose to create woman from man and not from the earth? Wouldn't that have been the clearest way to make equality evident in the scripture, both from the same source, both standing kind of equals in that respect? Yes. And so the fact that he took it out of the side of man does suggest that at some point that relationship is going to change. Just like in chapter 1 when we saw him create dark, create seas, create things that are evidence that he knew sin was coming, this is another one of those pieces of evidence that he knew there would be a fall, he knew there was sin around the corner. And in his response to that forthcoming moment, he made some choices early on to accommodate it, to anticipate it and deal with it. And one of those choices was that there would be headship eventually in the marriage partnership. But it hasn't been established yet. Adam, as I said, sees woman for the first time, and from the text, it's apparent it's love at first sight. Good thing, because he doesn't have any other options at this point. He names her woman, Ishish, which is, in Hebrew is simply wife. And then Adam says that's her name because she was taken from man. What's interesting is he uses a different word for man here. For the first time, he uses the word Ish in Hebrew, not Adam. Ish means husband. So he says, I'm calling her wife because I'm husband. Remember the word Adam means earth, and we now understand that that word describes mankind, not just the man. But when we get specific with respect to men versus women, the first words the Bible chooses to use in distinguishing man from woman is not male-female in this chapter. It is husband-wife. Husband-wife. She is a wife, he says, which then makes me a husband, he says. Adam defines himself as this woman's husband and likewise defines her as his wife. Their identities have changed. Where before he was man, now he's husband. This is the relationship, the first relationship God establishes for men apart from our relationship with him. Do you think marriage is important to God? The first relationship God establishes within the structure of humanity is one of a husband to a wife before any other relationships are made possible. Remember, though, in our resurrected bodies, in the, new in, the, in the time to come in the kingdom, and then what follows in the new heavens and new earth, we are not married. Jesus says in answer to the question about marriage in the kingdom, he says this in Luke 20, verse 34, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given into marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, the kingdom, and the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, if you've heard that before, you may never have noticed that Jesus not only says what will be so, but also why. 
He says, in that future age, there will no longer be marriage. Why? Because they cannot die any longer. Another way to say it is, because there is no sin. Logically, what we have to conclude is, marriage, the prospect of marriage, the institution of marriage, has been given to men for this age and not in the future, because it is an essential means by which we can contend with sin, battle sin, deal with it successfully in the service to God. That's already God's plan as he builds marriage into the, God, into the fabric of society. And he removes the need for it when it becomes the case that we no longer have to battle sin. So why is marriage not needed? It has to be a matter of sin in that age and in this age. And we will look more at that in chapter 3. Chapter 3 will give us a chance to really explore a lot of the whys around what we've seen happening in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. It's almost as if chapter 3 had started the process for God and chapters 1 and 2 were the response to it. Based on chapter 2, verse 24, the statement of what is marriage, a man and a woman cleaving together, leaving their parents, man particularly. There's a lot I could say on the issue of biblical marriage. In fact, when I last taught this chapter and addressed this verse, it's been a significant part of the overall teaching. And maybe next week or in future we'll have a chance to come back to it. I want to, for the sake of time today, only touch on a couple of issues related to marriage as it extends out of the text. In verse 24, there are at least several things that come out at us concerning the biblical view of marriage. It is between a man and a woman only. It is a partnership that is lifelong. It is a partnership that is God-ordained. It is a partnership that is made for the sake of serving God, not for our personal happiness. We certainly hope it will increase our personal happiness, but that's not a measure of whether the marriage should exist or not. Adam, we're told, and woman, were literally of the same flesh. How could they ever consider themselves to, to be distinct people again? How could they, for example, ever entertain the concept of divorce? Can you imagine Adam and woman coming to a point down the road and saying to themselves, we don't need to be together anymore? Adam's looking at his own flesh literally. Any more than we could cut off our arm. The verse here is so important because it illustrates how not only the marriage is instituted, but it pictures how we are joined to Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are joined to Christ permanently through a covenant into a single body made one flesh, if you will, with the body of Christ. Never to be separated. I find it interesting that those who would understand that would also argue for some exceptions to the rule of no divorce. If there's any way in which a marriage can be declared invalid, no longer, then what does it say about the covenant that it pictures? Is that to suggest there's exceptions there as well, that if the wrong things happen the wrong way, suddenly we can find ourselves severed from Christ? A covenant that is not severable according to Scripture? How can the picture be less than the reality in that sense? This is the second relationship God establishes in the Bible after the one he himself establishes with men in the garden. It shows how important the union is to God and it carries a picture of God's union to men in the new covenant. They must both be equally strong. Let's close there for the sake of, of time, patience, and uh, your, your willingness to listen. And next week, as we come back into the text in chapter 3, we will begin an exhaustive uh, exhaustive is not meant to be exhausting, uh, exhaustive examination of just how the changes in the garden that come as a matter of sin have fit into everything God had planned 
even from the beginning. I'll also say, just as we end, I've been promising at times along this path so far that we would have an opportunity to to examine evolution versus creation. This is about the right moment to insert that opportunity, right? As you finish chapter 2 is usually the right time. I'm not sure about the timing, though, of the event, fitting it in with other things and how we're going to schedule it. So there might be a bit of a gap. I hope you'll be patient as we try to work that into into a plan and let you know as soon as we have it planned. So let's go to prayer. Dear Father, Father, the text this morning reminds us of the care and the attention you went to in preparing a helper for Adam. Not all of us, Father, will be married. And even those who may have been married may find themselves single again at some point. And yet, Father, we can still appreciate the meaning of marriage as it pictures our covenant with Christ. We can understand, Father, how you have sent a helper so that we would be prepared to serve you better in the form of the Holy Spirit. We can understand a life that needs to be devoted to serving you. All of these messages still come out of the text, even for those of us, Father, for whom marriage is not currently our state. But then, Father, for those in the room who are married, those who have heard this teaching with that understanding and with that point of view, help us, Father, to see how we are to be in marriage properly, devoted, committed, serving God together, seeking to make each other better in that service, understanding that the roles have changed since this day as as the text of Scripture has informed and we have some adjustments that you have asked us to make since the fall. But nonetheless, Father, knowing that in your ultimate purpose, these are partners, committed equals, working to serve you. I ask, Father, we would be better in that. I pray this small church would be useful to you, Father, in making that happen, to encourage and guide others uh, in this church to know the truth and to be better servants together in marriage or by themselves. And I also pray, Father, that as we continue to study, you would continue to enlighten us by your spirit. You would continue to guide us into this room every week so that we'd hear the, the voice of Scripture and that you would help our hearts listen and do as we hear. Thank you, Father, for the service again. And send us out, Father, with a heart to serve you in all walks of life and to testify to the truth of what we know in Scripture. We pray these things in Jesus' name. I believe